There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Wharton. This is Cutting to the Matrix on the 12th of March 2010. For newcomers, you should always look into cuttingsforthematrix.com website. Scroll down, bookmark all the other sites I have up there for future reference because when the big ones go down, the comm site goes down, which it sometimes does, you can always draw down the latest shows from the other sites. And these are cuttingsforthematrix.com. Dot org, dot net, dot us, dot ca, Alan Watt, cutting through the matrix, dot ca, cutting through dot com, and Alan Watt Sentient Sentinel. The Sentinel site, the EU site, is the, this is the same audios for download, but you get the addition of transcripts. So a lot of the talks I've given over the past, where you can download those for print up and choose from the various languages of Europe as well. And I always remind the audience that you are the audience and that uh, I depend upon you to keep me going. I don't accept money from advertisers or backers. So the ads on this show that you hear are paid by the advertisers directly to RBN for the broadcast of the show and for their equipments and for their staff and for their bills. So you have to help me with mine. And you can do so by going into cuttingthroughthematrix.com. See the books I have for sale. And remember, I don't write in a, a, the, the linear fashion, the computer language that we're brainwashed with. I show you a lot of symbols and so on, which is a language in itself, to show you there's other ways of thinking as well. And to show you as well how the symbols work upon you and how you've been conned your whole life long. And probably most of you will continue to be conned as they use different combinations of them. They're very predictable. You can also buy discs and DVDs uh, uh, on the site as well. Uh, the CD discs of maybe 50 shows at a time, going pretty pretty good prices. And you can pay from the U.S., remember, from with a personal check to Canada. You can also go to your post office in the U.S. and get an international postal money order. I stress international. Don't get the green internal one. You can use MoneyGram, Western Union, or cash. Same outside the Americas. In Canada, you can use MoneyGram, Western Union, Cash, or PayPal. If you want to buy uh, with PayPal, purchase the books or, or something, instead of donating, just d- use the donate button and send a separate email with your order, and I'll get it out to you. And for those who get the disc burned to the shows and pass to them, they play them on their CD players, don't like computers, you can get in touch with me at Alan Watt, W-A-T-T, Site 41, Box 4, Estair, which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. Postal code is P for Peter, the number 3, E for Elizabeth, the number 4, N for Nora, the number 1. And that's the spiel over for the first uh, few minutes. You know, a lot of this news that I even read over the air to me is, is, is kind of trivia because it's released into the mainstream media. Sometimes it's legalities other times to take you off in different directions. But the media's job is not to keep you informed. If you were informed about what was happening in the world, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in. 
You understand that, of course. We wouldn't have this massive debt. We wouldn't have a corrupt banking system that's been on the go long before we were ever thought of. And uh, we wouldn't have this big mafia system we call democracy all tied together through the IMF and the United Nations. If there are true media in any country, this would not have happened. It couldn't happen because we would know the scam from the beginning. The beauty of scams like this is once it's on the go and it's, and it's your parents accept it, then you will accept it quite naturally as well. All mammals look to the parents to warn them of what's dangerous to them. And humans are no different. What a system, eh? Beautiful. Train one generation and they train the next. I'll be back with more after this break. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. Just mentioning if the media had ever done its job properly, we would never be in the mess we're in. We couldn't be fooled if we're being given truth all the time. And remember, I I read an article last year where some case was brought against, I think it was one of the big TV networks, by some of the staff who were forbidden to show a program that they'd done, a, a documentary, even though they were under contract to do as they wished. And it turned out in the courts in the U.S. that... The judge said uh, that the media is under no obligation to tell the public the truth. And that seldom dawns on the average person who parrots off the media at face value. And it's always been this way. It's always been this way. When the big bankers started off using London as a test ground, they'd already used countries before it. Holland was one. And then they built up London to take over. And then New York after that, although London's still one of the biggest players, probably still the big player, they also took over and created the big media uh, chains. Because information is vital, knowledge is power, and if you want to hold on to power and not share it, then you just give the public nonsense or trivia to follow around. And that's what we're dished out daily. Until... And this is the interesting thing which they found at the top as well. The more trivia they give the public, the more the public seem to like it. Especially, especially if it's sort of trivia about the stars. They gave us the stars as well from Hollywood and the bimbos and, and who's having affairs and who's divorced and all the rest of it. As though it was uh, vital to know, vital to our existence to know this stuff. Kind of like sports, you know. Same kind of nonsense. And the, the people seem to want more and more and more of it. Because, you see, you don't have to get involved and make any decisions with this kind of trivia. It titillates the senses, but you don't have to make any adjustments in your life or actually do something. So they kind of like that. And most folk in today's society are part of the new collective. Individualism was a short-lived thing. People were starting to get a bit of it uh, after the, the, um, the death of feudalism, if you want to call it that or want to even believe in that. Uh, that's when individualism came to the surface for the first time as folk got some freedoms. And they found out it's much easier to go back and use collectivism, where we all parrot the same stuff and think the same stuff. We're all educated with the same stuff. And so we're all in the same Plato's cave. We're all familiar with the exact same cave. Anything outside that cave has got to be ludicrous, you see. And you'll laugh at it because it can't exist, can it? Yet, as I say, the media's job... As, as, like a, as an arm of governments, 
It's an arm of the big banker boys who control everything. The same families that have lent to countries for centuries still run the world today. And they're doing it even more so as they bring on the big crash to lead up to the IMF, which is their bank, by the way, uh, taking over. That's just a meeting place for the same moneylenders to meet the International Monetary Fund at the United Nations. Everybody works for them. Everybody, Every prime minister and president works for them across the planet. That's the reality of life. Your educational system is, is given by them to mandate you get the proper indoctrination so you'll never figure it out. Your entertainment industry programs you for what's to come through fiction and at the same time it keeps you bedazzled as well so you don't figure it out. You think everything that happens in life is, and comes up and is passed by a law must be quite normal right down to getting a, a chip stuck in your head. That would be quite normal too. But it's much better to get the public to actually want it. And that's not hard to do either. But to show you how the media is just an arm of government, listen to the spiel that's given by this particular uh, reporter here for the Register. And I've talked before about how Australia was one of the first governments to mandate the filtering policy on the Internet, and yet one of the first people who were censored, who was censored for using the Internet, was actually a Christian group who had the word abortion in one of their topics. So it wasn't going after pornography at all. It was going after all the people who were protesting against the corrupt way of depopulation that's being mandated across the world, which is also an outcome of the the promiscuity that was mandated back in the 40s and 50s by Julian Huxley and others as a way to destroying the family unit. This article is from uh, uh, New Zealand. Uh, it could be the, the actual the register, should say. 12th of March, 2010. New Zealand internet filter goes live. So they've followed New Zealand because the British Commonwealth countries all work together. They're still ruled from London, really. And it says that New Zealand's internet filtering system went live last month, but the government forgot to mention th- this to the electorate until its hand was forced by online freedom campaign Tech Liberty. So here's the spiel the paper gives out about it, right? That uh, the, the government forgot to mention this to the electorate. Says Thomas Beagle, a spokesman for the group, said he was very disappointed that the filter is now running and that its launch has been conducted in such a stealthy mode. He added, it's a sad day for the New Zealand internet. In an interview with Computer World this week, he claimed that the filter had gone live in February the 1st by but the Department of Internal Affairs, that's a governmental department, delayed announcing this until it had met with its independent reference group. The manager of DIA's censorship compliance unit, I like that censorship compliance unit, sounds very Soviet, doesn't it? Steve O'Brien denied there had been any subterfuge. The system had been undergoing trials for two years, and the media had been aware of this throughout. So he's one blaming the other, you see, that's what they do. But what you're seeing is also true. The media were aware of this uh, for the last two years. But where did they have their public pointing? The same bimbos you see in your same front pages and all down the side there in their bikinis. That's where they take you into nonsense. He says, the independent reference group had met and the filter system processes were demonstrated as set out in the Code of Practice That is that the website filtering system prevents access to known websites containing images of child sexual abuse. That's what they said with Australian one too. As I said, it ended up grabbing Christian groups. 
While the DIA continued to be coy about exactly which ISPs are joining the filter, Tech Liberty understands that Watchdog and Maxnet have already signed up to deploy the filter system and that ISPs Telstra, Clear, Telecom and Vodafone have said they will do so too. So, so there you go, as I say, uh, the government blames the media for not informing the public and the media uh, blame the government for doing it in a stealth mode. That's how it's run, because they both work for the same boss, you see. The guy who prints the money. And that's what central banks are. They have the right to issue, meaning print up money. That's what they do. And, and, that, and everyone goes to the big boys for their money, including every so-called head of every government. Now, what's also come out too is how they're, they're leaving nothing to chance anymore. Everyone is supposed to know at a certain level, put it this way, all the common people, the common, that's the bulk of the populace, uh, are supposed to know or be able to find out about everybody else across the planet and, and the same classes themselves. Uh, quite a few years ago, they did say, I can remember from the British governments uh, that, uh, and the U.S. governments, that special people, that their information as to where they live, who they really are, all that kind of stuff, would be denied to the public uh, as far as access through internet once, so you couldn't find out. But for the common folk, everyone else is supposed to know exactly where you are. And Google has come out with uh, a completely mapped Britain now, with your house and everything on it. There's also a company I should mention before I go on with this article that's come out with some kind of phone, and somehow or another, if you join their little club, uh, allows burglars and everybody else to know when you're home or, or where you are. If you're not at home, it'll tell you where, them where you are. So now here's Google to tell them how to get to where you are. All mapped out virtually every road in the UK will now appear in Google's Street View. 11th of March, Google is extending its Street View service to appear at 95% of homes in the UK, despite criticism that amounts to an invasion of privacy. Well, you know who the other 5% are? That, those are the people who really matter, you see. The people who deserve privacy, as you say. And after all, in the British system, they say privilege. Everything's a privilege, so privacy is a, is a privilege in Britain. Since from today, 360-degree pictures will be available virtually every street from Penzance to Shetland. An extra 210,000 miles of detailed mapping will be made public. The ser- service <laughs> has previously been restricted to major cities. It means Britain will join Spain, France, Italy and the U.S., which already have national or nationwide coverage. Street view images are captured by Google Car, fitted with panoramic camera on its roof. Why do they even need a car? They can just do it all from satellite. Pedestrianised areas include Stonehenge and the banks of Loch Ness, were shot by a Google tricycle. Oh, 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 big deal. What's trivia? The project, launched in partnership with Visit Britain, also imaged the Millennium Stadium, Angel of the North, Eden Project, and Warwick Castle, etc., etc., etc. However, there are people who are also complaining about it because... It, it, once again, it's a destruction of your own privacy. But if you're a commoner, you're not in that 5% who's not on it. Great how they can also make deals with the, the knobs, as they call these people, you know, the 5%, the ones who matter, the government employees up there uh, in, the, in the, the federal governments and so on. They don't appear. On, because, you see, people might be after them. Well, maybe some nutcases after common folk as well apart from the government and the taxman. 
That doesn't matter either, does it? So that's what we are, you see. We're just the herd, as I said last night. I'm going to put an article up tonight, too, on cuttingthroughthematrix.com. All these links will be up there if ExploreNet obliges me with the speed to put anything up, which is seldom do. Uh, but uh, this is from the BBC, and it's about statistics and how the media can bend your perception and, and the actual, as regards the actual facts. And it's called Safety in Numbers, 18th of July, 2008. It's worth repeating this one. It says, Alarming stories of a rise in knife crime and lack of confidence and understanding statistics, more fear for ourselves and our children, said Lisa Jardin. And I'll read this. I'll show you how, because she goes through the process of the media spinning things out of proportion back after this break. Hi, folks. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. Reading an article which is a couple of years old, but it's worth going over because it's written by a woman who, she says here, my own small research center runs a master's in research program and the marks accumulated by students from the various exercises and modules have to be collated and tabulated to work out their degree result. Since each module's mark represents a proportion of the sum total of those available, this involves calculating percentages, a task which seems to fill several of my otherwise highly competent members of staff with dismay even though they're accustomed to processing arcane information from documents and archives. But then she actually used this technique on the media and the stories in the media. She says, over the past couple of weeks, we've been bombarded with figures by the media on a range of topics, all apparently calculated to cause the person in the street the maximum amount of concern. Some of the stories based on these statistics have been the talking point at practically every social gathering I have attended. And then she goes on to fear factor. In the aftermath of what has felt like an avalanche of shocking news stories, multiple arrays of statistics have been produced purporting to show a sudden alarming rise in knife-related murders of school-age young people. These have whipped up public anxiety to near-panic levels, with headlines proclaiming an epidemic of knife and gun crime spiralling out of control, creating a level of youth disorder which adds up to a national crisis. These are the headlines she's showing you. The first thing to say is that discrepancies in data collection methods make it hard to get a coherent story out of these numbers, though the journalists have certainly tried hard. In spite of the statistics selectively used to fuel an alarmist story, all the available figures from reliable sources like the Home Office, that's the British government's homeland security thing, and the police seem to be showing that incidences of knife crime have remained relatively steady over the past five years, while violent crime as a whole has actually declined. In 2007, the British Crime Survey reported that the drop in violent crime is part of a long-term trend, Crime rates peaked in 1995, then fell by 42% over the subsequent 10 years. But to read the reports that come out of the newspapers, it's worse than ever, you see. A lengthy report by the Centre for Crime and Justice Studies, Guns, Knives and Street Violence, published last month, summarises as follows. The evidence of knife crime contains a number of ambiguities, but combining the various data sets, a rather clear picture emerges 
Despite increased media attention, levels of knife crime have remained fairly stable at around 6 to 7% of all violent crime. And then she goes on to show you how it's done and how the, the, the media grab these stories, blow them way out of all proportion until everyone's terrified. And then, of course, the NGOs come forward and demand that something be done, get more laws out there, and that kind of stuff. And when they're not on about that, they're on about dog bites, dog bites, and get more laws to restrict dogs and so on. And then now they're back to knife crime again. This is a back and forth because the media, apart from keeping you in utter ignorance, is, is also supposed to keep you on the edge. You see, the big boys in politics, the boys that run the banking system, want everyone to be on the edge all the time. It makes you easier to control. You never relax. When you're relaxed, you can really think clearly about things. When you're, when you're always on the edge and afraid of things, then you will never, ever think clearly on anything. So I'll put this link up as well for those who want to look it over and go over it. Now, <laughs> I've got an article here um, about burglars. It's amazing. It's interesting to watch how the Soviet Union, the, the, the test bed for the, the Fabian socialists that, uh, and the collectivist system, uh, to run the world. That's where they got it was the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union, if you, if you said anything about, uh, government, uh, even about any particular policy of government, you were called anti-government. That's where the term comes from that we're now using now. And it's being slapped on anybody in the, uh, who is not in parliament or in your Congress. It's been slapped on anybody in the general public who complains about any policy. Ah, you're anti-government. Well, we got that from the Soviet Union, but also from the Soviet Union, if they would slap you in a gulag, you see, uh, for any po- what they called political crimes. And that meant disagreeing about things or objecting even. An objection was a nasty thing in the Soviet Union. However, ordinary criminals were treated with incredible leniency in some places, in prisons. Because, you see, under the Darwinian scheme of things and the, and the Pavlovian scheme of things, where everyone can be retrained through science, they can remake you, kind of like the, the character in the movie Clockwork Orange, they can remake you into the proper kind of man with science. Science's rules, you see. Science has displaced all gods off their pedestals. Well, here's Britain, again, the flagship for the whole world to follow, uh, doing the same thing, because... Guess what? Uh, he's a, a ruling come out from the High Court in England that burglars should not be put in prison. I'm not kidding, you know. And it's uh, the 12th of March, the Mail Online. Burglars should not be jailed unless they cause damage or hurt someone when committing their crime, government advisers said yesterday. The sentencing advisory panel called for judges and magistrates not to hand down prison sentences to ordinary burglars who were responsible for minimal loss or damage. But even criminals who operate in gangs or steal large sums of money may walk free under the guidelines, which suggest community punishment for many offenders. The recommendations contradict last year's ruling by Lord Chief Justice Lord Judge. It's actually called Lord Judge, believe it or not. This is like reading a fairy story when you read these British newspapers. I'll be back with more on this after this break.
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. This is Alan Watchword, cutting through the Matrix. Just going over an article which talks about uh, burglars should be let to go free. And it says, it said here that, um, it said the sentencing advisory panel said yesterday that any starting point for domestic burglary should be non-custodial. Damage, harm to householders, that's if they bash you on the head and stuff, or other factors making the crime more serious should make a jail sentence more likely. I mean, not, not definitely, right? It's suggested. So, there's how far things are going. See, they want this stuff, and they want to hype up the problems within society, the revolving door, and turn them back on the streets again to cause more crime. And cops love it, too, because if they put all the criminals away, they'd have to start laying off the cops. So, as long as the criminals are just revolving out, they can keep catching them again for, for new crimes and putting them back in, and they come back out the court again, like a revolving door, just round and round and round. And So, everybody's happy, and uh, especially the law society, and it keeps them in business. But in society itself, it makes you afraid. And when you're afraid, you look to government to, to make you secure. That's the oldest technique of tyranny in the book. Terrify the public, offer them security at a price. No freedom. Well, we've got to watch everybody, including you too, you know. And that's how the game works. Now, while they're allowing burglars to go free, uh, there's a good article here in the same country uh, about uh, a guy put in jail for smoking. He was a landlord of a bar, you know, a pub. Mail Online, this guy's jailed for smoking ban martyrs freed by a mystery crusader's cash. 11th of March, it says. Freedom arrived earlier than expected for a smoking ban martyr, Nick Hogan, yesterday, courtesy of, of a briefcase full of cash carried by a man in green Guy Fox mask. That's after that V for vendetta, you see. Public, uh, former public landlord Mr. Hogan became the first person to be jailed in connection with the smoking ban when he was sentenced to six months for refusing to pay a fine imposed for flouting the legislation. His plight inspired a campaign on the internet to raise funds to pay off his outstanding fines. It reached its climax yesterday, a national no smoking day no less, when a mysterious blogger called Old Hoburn, that's a nice tobacco, delivered the money to Forest Bank Prison in Salford, 11 days into Mr. Hogan's sentence. The arrival of the self-styled libertarian vigilante at the Category B prison in his mask, full black costume and hat left other visitors amused or bewildered. In prison carback, old Holborn, who wore his costume to hide his identity, flipped open the metal case to reveal enough bundles of used fibers and tenors, that's cash, to pay the £8,445 needed to secure 43-year-old Mr. Hogan's release. Isn't that just extortion? Don't people realize that, that the legal business is just a mafia, you know, where you can pay the cash and you go free? Pay the cash and you go free. That's how it all works, isn't it? It's the same with your taxes for if you have a home or something. You pay the cash to the government or they, they, they steal your home. We live in an extortion system. 
But we've been trained to see it in a different way. We, our perceptions have been distorted through conditioning. So we, had, we don't actually see what we're seeing. It says, Old Holborn, who says he is named after his mother's birthplace in London, rather than the well-known tobacco, told reporters, I'm here to free a man in prison under an unjust law. So they put guys in prison for who own their own bars, right? And who allow customers to come in who all smoke. I mean, if you're going into a, a, a strip tease joint, you know what to expect in a strip tease joint, right? If you go into a gay bar, you know what you're walking into a gay bar. Well, if you go into a smoking bar, you know what, you're, what they're doing. They're going to smoke. So what's their, what's their problem with it? What's their problem with it? They go after smokers instead. Now, it's okay to shoot heroin and all that kind of stuff. They'll, they'll actually have government uh, social workers going around in vans dropping off new syringes and stuff like that to make sure it's nice and hygienic. And in British Columbia, they teach young children in primary school how to inject safely. But don't dare smoke a cigarette. You know, that's just taboo. And where did all this come from? Well, the United Nations World Health Organization. That's who started it off. Who started off the war against obesity? The UN's World Health Organization. Again, everything comes from the United Nations. Something that none of us vote for because we're not given a vote on anything. And this wonderful democracy. I call it bureaucracy. It's rot. You see, that's what it really is. And for shades of thing to come, things to come, as they say. Rioting was expected as the countries go under with the latest plunder of uh, our pockets by the same bankers again who planned it all long ago. And uh, mind you, they got all the, the military ready to, to take over countries should the folks start rioting. Uh, and they, they planned that long ago as well to make sure of it. But Greece is the first country, I think, one of the, one of the first countries, I think Iceland had a, a, a bit of riots going on as well about the bankruptcies going on, and Greece has also followed suit. So I, I expect there'll be a spate of them uh, going on. It says here, Greece rocked by riots as up to 60,000 people take to streets to protest against the government. And that's again from the Mail Online, uh, March the 11th. Street clashes broke out between rioting youths and police in central Athens today as tens of thousands demonstrated during a nationwide strike against the cash-strapped government. Hundreds of masked and hooded youths punched and kicked motorcycle police, knocking several off their bikes as police responded with volleys of tear gas and stun grenades. The violence spread after the end of March to a nearby square where police faced off with stone-throwing anarchists and suffocated clouds off tear gas sent patrons scurrying from open-air cafes. Rioters used sledgehammers to smash the glass fronts of more than a dozen shops, banks, jewellers and a cinema. Use also sent fire to, to the garbage bins in a car, smashed bus stops, chopped blocks off marble balustrades and building facades to use as projectiles. Organisers said that some 60,000 people took part in a protest but an official police estimate set the crowd around 20,000, including those that took part in a separate peaceful march earlier Thursday. What's interesting is to read down in the article, a lot of police themselves joined in because they're also fed up at uh, government cutbacks on their wages. So it's, uh, it's a really start of the, of the riots to come because, you see, we've all to pay through the nose with massive inflation as they print more cash and... Uh, 
and government, of course, are going to tax us more and more in any possible way that they can. Everything's going to be taxed. Even the air we breathe is going to be taxed. That's really what the carbon taxes are, are all about. You know, it was King James I that was first called the, the first king to tax fresh air and light because um, he made a law to, to get taxes in. He couldn't get any through Parliament at the time. Uh, that uh, inspectors went round all the houses counting your window panes. And depending on how many that you had and how many windows that you had would, uh, would also give the amount of tax that you'd have to pay up. And that's why in England today, some of these very old houses, old mansions and so on, are, you'll see the, where the windows have been bricked up. That's how the folk go around it then. They use their, their savvy. They say, well, okay, we'll, we'll sit inside with a candle rather than pay these taxes. You know, folk today wouldn't even do that. They're too dumbed down, drugged, um, doped with the, the stuff in their drinking water and their injections to even think of doing that. But they also taxed you for, according to the light that would come through your windows. Now we're going to get taxed on the much carbon dioxide we use or what goes into any product that we buy. And the farce after bags are nothing. They don't even have the bags to collect it, and just bags of, of theoretical nothing. Worked out by who? The bankers' boys. Who profits off it? The bankers' boys. Who pays for all? We do, as always. As always, a world where the majority of people just play, play into their graves. Quite something. How disgusting. You know, our, our ancestors would, would turn in their graves to know what we put up with today. They would disown us. Utterly disown us. For the wimps that we become. I've always said that 50 years after any major event, because that's generally what they put down for the Official Secrets Act, when governments and their agencies do dirty tricks on the general public that will kill you, that is, generally, generally it's a lethal type of thing, like spraying uh, Norwich people with, the, with the, the British Navy and allowing the gas to go across the, the part of the sea into Norwich and, um, uh, and then test them down the road to see how many cancers develop, how many problems develop. This is a common thing that governments do. But uh, there's nobody more clandestine really than the CIA uh, here's an article that's, that's blossomed out today. It's probably all over the place. From the Telegraph, a 50-year mystery over the cursed bread of Pont-Saint-Esprit, which left residents suffering hallucinations, has been solved after a writer discovered the U.S. had spiked the, the town's bread with LSD as part of an experiment, 11th of March, 2010. French bread spiked with LSD in a CIA experiment. American investigative journalist has uncovered the evidence suggesting the CIA peppered the food with a hallucinogenic drug LSD. In 1951, a quiet, picturesque village in southern France was suddenly and mysteriously struck down with mass insanity and hallucinations. At least five people died, dozens were interned in asylums, and hundreds were afflicted. For decades, it was assumed that the local bread had been unwittingly poisoned with a psychedelic mold. Now, however, an American investigative journalist has uncovered evidence suggesting the CIA peppered local food with a hallucinogenic drug, LSD, as part of a mind control experiment at the height of the Cold War. Well, they did it in other places as well. They were doing an offload of it within the United States on their own military. 
back to the article, the mystery of, of Le Pain Mordit, his cursed bread, still haunts the inhabitants of Pont Saint-Esprit in the Gard, southern France. On August 1651, the inhabitants were suddenly racked with frightful hallucinations of terrifying beasts and fire. One man tried to drown himself, screaming that his belly was being eaten by snakes. An 11-year-old tried to strangle his grandmother. Another man shouted, I'm a plane, before jumping out a second-floor window, breaking his legs. He then got up and carried on for 50 yards. That's what it does to you. You break your bones and still go on. Another saw his heart escaping through his feet and begged the doctor to put it in. Many were taken to the local asylum in straitjackets. Time magazine wrote at the time, Time's a great cover for the CIA, Among the stricken, delirium rose, patients thrashed wildly on their beds, screaming that red flowers were blossoming from their bodies and that their heads had turned to molten lead. In other words, the CIA and Time worked together on the story because, you see, that happened in the Middle Ages quite commonly with the ergo of rye, a mold that forms on the, 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 the rye, which they used for their bread and kept in a, in a, a common uh, uh, place. A silo, a common silo, it would often happen, and they would get these hallucinations. So they're using that, and that's how they, they, they put it down at the time. What could be the same ergo of rye hallucinations? Eventually, it was determined that the best known local baker had unwittingly contaminated his flour with ergot and a hallucinogenic mold that infects rye grain. Another theory was that the bread had been poisoned with organic mercury. However, H.P. Alberelli, Jr., an investigative journalist, claims the outbreak resulted from a covert experiment directed by the CIA and the U.S. Army's top-secret Special Operations Division at Fort Detrick, Maryland. Maryland's responsible for not a, st- a lot of stuff. The scientist who produced both alternative explanations, he writes, worked for the Swiss-based Sandoz Pharmaceutical Company, which was then secretly supplying both the U.S. Army and CIA with the LSD. Mr. Alberelli came across CIA documents when investigating the suspicious suicide of Frank Olson, a biochemist working for the SOD who fell from a 13th, 13th floor window two years after the cursed bread incident. So put I love how they fit it together. Eh? They, they love these numbers and stuff. One note transcribes a conversation between a CIA agent and a Sandoz pharma official who mentions the secret of Pont Saint Esprit and explains it was not at all caused by mold but by diethylamide, the D and LSD. While compiling his book, A Terrible Mistake, I guess it's a number, The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments, Mr. Arborelli spoke to former colleagues of Mr. Olson, two of whom told him that the Ponce Esprit incident was part of a mind control experiment run by the CIA and U.S. Army. After the Korean War, the Americans launched a vast research program into the mental manipulation of prisoners and enemy troops. Scientists at Fort Detrick told that agents to, uh, had sprayed LSD into the air, that had, ga- had aerosolized it, and also contaminated local food products as well. Mr. Aberley said the real smoking gun was a White House document sent to members of the Rockefeller Commission. Well, who else? Who else, eh? Since the bankers in control. Formed in 1975 to investigate CIA abuses. It contained the names of a number of French nationals who'd been secretly employed by the CIA I made direct reference to the Pont Saint-Esprit incident. In its request to research LSD as an offensive weapon, Mr. Aberelli claims the U.S. Army also drugged over 5,700 unwitting American servicemen between 1953 and 1965. And there's instances, too, of servicemen under experimentation who also threw themselves out of uh, 
windows, quite a few floors up, and died as well. So that's where you know that's how you can trust your governments. You, you cannot trust your governments for anything. I've got report after report from different countries of their own governments doing these kind of experiments on them, and worse, much much worse. And Canada, it took it 50 years before the, the very few survivors of experiments of the Canadian government and the warfare uh, facilities um, division of the Department of Defense uh, had been spraying all their, their soldiers. These so-called uh, volunteers were told it was going to, going to test new gas masks. It was nothing to do with that at all. It was to get the stuff on their skin, through their clothing, on their skin, stuff that was absorbed into your bloodstream and that they're all dying off of cancers. There's only about two of them left so far. Who needs enemies when you've got your own governments? Do you realize we're all pawns in a bigger game? And the boys who rule us have world agendas, and they don't see the peasants below them in any country any different from the peasants anywhere else. They don't have any particular affiliations or, or amiable feelings towards you. They see you as a separate lower species, less evolved. But we never learn, do we? But we're very handy for keeping it going, paying the taxes for research and development for new weaponry to control all of us. We pay for our handcuffs over and over and over. We pay for our chains. And of course, there's there's no stage where it's enough. You know, you can never say that's enough. We never say that. It's true, you know, if everyone stood up tomorrow and just told every Every law officer, every court, no, no, we're not even going to recognize you, and you walk out. What are they going to do, arrest, up, arrest the whole nation? Or we've had enough with these prices or these taxes or whatever. Do you realize they'd all have to go home in their silly little costumes they call uniforms? That's the music coming in, so we'll be back with more after this break. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt, we're cutting through the matrix, just just mentioning the fact that, you know, it, it takes two to tango, an old, old saying, two to tango, and that's when people used to hold each other when they danced, you know, and uh, it really does, it takes it takes the authorities and it takes the public to tango, where they, they play and pretend they're, they're there to take care of us, and we play and pretend that they are. And we pay up and cough up, you know, and they go through the motions with a smile on their face. Can we have more cash? And we say, well, we're kind of broke. And then they pass along and say, well, you really have to obey now, won't you? And we all say, yeah, I guess we do. But really, when if the public just stood up, which they will never do, don't, don't get me wrong, I know they'd never do this. But if they ever stood up and just walked out of courts and walked out of everything all together en masse, then all the people... But all the silly symbols of authority would mean, it would mean nothing. It would instantly mean nothing. Nothingness. Absolute nothingness. And, and they'd all feel like goons with the judges with their big long wigs on and their coat, their, their cloaks on and whatever they do or don't wear underneath it and stuff like that. It takes two to tango. And the reason that we've been trained to believe we need them all is for our own security and safety. It's such a violent, scary world out there that without them, there'd be chaos. And for that reason, we allow ourselves to be coerced and cajoled until we have no privacy whatsoever. None at all. 
And it's time the game was stopped, really. And say, enough. Everybody, that's enough, you know. And it's true enough, which will never happen. It's pie-in-the-sky fantasy. But if the next time the gasoline goes flying up or the oil for heating goes up, everybody stops buying it. That's it. You'll see them scurry very quickly to get to, to get the prices down. But we don't do these these simple things. Passive resistance worked in India. And that's what we really need to show across the world. The people really have to be united. The problem is there's so many factions all fighting for supremacy, you can't really get folk even to go along with anything together for their own good. Even if the world was coming to an end, they wouldn't do it. And that's where the Club of Rome was quite right. There were too many competing and conflicting parties for power, for democracy to work. That's why they bypassed democracy and brought us the parallel government called the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And talking about them, their brothers in the U.S. and Canada called the Council on Foreign Relations have issued, and I'll put this up on my site too, February 24th, 2010, a series of reports on how to report the science to the general public on climate change so that they're all on board giving the same lies together and they don't start emailing each other about all the nonsense uh, that gets found out by the public. So they're issuing guidelines on how to report this stuff to the public so we'll all get the same propaganda from this, from the different panels. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is working with them and uh, the Council on Foreign Relations are the ones who are advising them on how to overcome problems with brainwashing uh, the, the, the public with the propaganda. I'll put that link up. And also next to it, there's a, a BBC article. Actually, it's a United Nations article from the UN itself. Um, oh, actually, Telegraph. United Nations review of how the world assesses the risk of climate change at the same time as the Royal Institute of International Affairs issued their report. Amazing how they all do it at the same time. They couldn't be connected, could they? No. Who'd have thunk or something such a thing? So I'll put this link up too, and you can read it for yourself to see how we'll get nothing but uh, um, standardized reporting on the climate from them all, from now on, thanks to the CFR. From Hamish, myself, in Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your gods go with you.